Hello and welcome to another E-Myth Your Business podcast. I'm Karen Iwata, an experienced coach, seminar leader, and keynote speaker for E-Myth Worldwide. I've worked in some capacity with E-Myth now for over a decade and have personally engaged with thousands of our business owner clients, so I am very familiar with the challenges and the triumphs that you face every day. I'm excited to introduce you to our guest today, John Warlow, who has written a brand new book called Built to Sell. He is an entrepreneur, an author, speaker, and throughout his career as an entrepreneur, he started and exited four companies. Most recently, he transformed Warlow and Company from a boutique consultancy into a recurring revenue model subscription business, which he sold to the corporate executive board in 2008. As I said, he is the author of Built to Sell and Drilling for Gold, and in 2008 was recognized by B2B Magazine's Who's Who list as one of America's most influential business-to-business marketers. Welcome, John. So happy to have you here. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Kim. Very, very good, and very excited to talk about this new book, which aligns so perfectly with the Emith perspective and what we do. Let me just um, give everybody a bit of an overview about what this book is about. Built to Sell will tell you the eight steps to creating a sellable company, how to attract multiple strategic bidders for your business, how to maximize your valuation and get the highest possible price for your business. And it provides you with the secret to getting your cash up front and avoiding that lengthy earnout that so many business owners uh, find that they have to confront when they want to sell their business. So, John, you have made a career out of studying entrepreneurs. How did that come about? Yeah, I used to produce a radio program about entrepreneurs, and the sponsor of the radio show asked me to give them advice about how to reach entrepreneurs. And so I launched a company that became a research company where we researched small business owners and we provided those results back to uh, big companies who subscribed to our service. And, and I built that company up and we built it up to about $5 million in revenue. And, and in 2004, I went to try to sell the company. And I went to an M&A advisor and I said, you know, what, what do you think it's worth? You know, we have a successful business. And he said, well, before we get to valuation, let me ask you a couple questions. Number one, you know, you do a lot of research, so, well, who does the research? Who oversees the research? And I said, I guess, you know, I, I certainly oversee a lot of it. And he said, okay, number two, who does the selling? I said, well, I'm probably the number one rainmaker for my company, so I do a lot of the selling. And he said, well, John, I, I can't sell your business. Uh-huh. And so that was an epiphany for me. And if you've ever been told that you're, you have an unsellable business or your valuation is lower than you thought it was, it's a little bit like telling you know, the mom in the maternity ward that her baby is, is the ugliest in the room. It's tough to hear. <laughs> and so I, I went out and, and really reshaped the business over the next four years and transformed it into a sellable business. And, and really that's what I talk about in, in the book are the eight steps you need to take to kind of morph your business into one that you can sell. Well, you know, I have to tell you, I loved the book. It's a really easy read, but it is full of really tremendous tips and insights. And I think that what you said um, just now is really important that so many business owners believe that because they have revenues at a certain level, the business is therefore sellable. And your book really sort of debunks that thinking and yet provides you with a real strategy to um, create a business that ultimately will be sellable. 
Yeah, I mean, the, the first step that business owners need to ask themselves, regardless of how much revenue they have, is do they have a product that scales or a service that scales? Mm-hmm. And scalable products and services, in my view, meet three criteria. Number one, they're teachable. I know at the EMIF you spent a lot of time talking about the importance of working in, excuse me, on, not in the business. That's right. So, you know, how teachable is the product that you, that you provide? Mm-hmm. Uh, number two, does it reoccur? Is it consumable? Is there a consumable nature to what you sell? Think razor blades, not razors. Uh, and number three, do your customers care about it? Is it a valuable product in their mind? So if it meets those three criteria, valuable, teachable, and repeatable, you know you're onto a scalable product, and that's really the first step in extricating yourself from the business is, is, is finding a product or service that meets those three criteria. So let me ask you, when you tried to sell your business and, were, and, and, and was basically told it's not sellable at this point because it was too dependent on you, you were doing the research, is this where you started? It is. Uh-huh. We took a whiteboard, literally a whiteboard, and wrote down all of the products and services that we, uh, we offered. And I was like a lot of entrepreneurs, I think, and that was that you know, we did anything for a buck. We would do focus groups or mm-hmm. quantitative market research or desk research, all the kinds of research you could provide. And we just plotted it all on an X and Y axis. So on one axis, we had how much our customers cared about that product or service, and on the other axis, we, we, we had how, how teachable is that product or service. And then we eliminated all of the products on the board that were not repeatable, meaning mm-hmm. that they were just one-off services. And then we simply looked for the products and services that were at the top right-hand side of that access, the ones that were, again, repeatable and our customers cared about them. So, so given that, I mean, that was, it sounds like that was one of your big aha moments. And certainly you go into a, uh, you know, a quite a bit of depth about that in the book. But do you think that, that one of the biggest things that gets in the way of business owners selling their businesses is, is that they fail to meet that scalability um, criteria? Is that like the biggest thing or is there something else that goes on with them that prevents them from building a business that they can actually transfer in some way or you know, have what you call, which I thought was brilliant, an options strategy as opposed to just having an exit strategy? Yeah, it's really, it really does come down to having an option strategy. Let me describe that for you. An option strategy is running your business so that all of your exit options are available to you. Running your business so that you could sell it if and when you decided to. Running your business so that it's so much fun to run, cash flow positive, not a lot of client headaches, that you could see yourself running it for another 25 years. Running it so that you've got a management team in place so that if you did get the proverbial hit by a bus, yeah. uh, you know, the, the, the business would go on. That's an option strategy. And, uh, and, and that's the kind of strategy we think all you know, business owners should really, uh, really pursue. And, of course, you know, from our perspective, and I'm sure that you know, it aligns with you know, your thinking, well, it obviously does after having read the book, you need to figure that out at the front end or at least certainly way ahead of the time that you think you're actually going to be in a position to sell or transfer. Yeah, you know, most business owners uh, you know, start businesses like they watch movies. Mm-hmm. You know, they have no idea how the movie ends. And they go about the business day to day 
serving customers, making a profit, but at the end of the day, uh, oftentimes uh, it's actually an external factor that causes them to consider selling their business. The two most common triggers that small business owners, that cause small business owners to think about selling their company are both external. Number one is they get an unsolicited bid from a third party that makes them think, wow, if they're willing to spend that much to buy my business, maybe there are other companies. And they mm-hmm. go about the process of thinking about selling. Number two is a health scare. Either they themselves or a close you know, relative or spouse is, uh, is stricken with some sort of illness. Right. And, and it causes them to reevaluate and think, wow, life is short. I, I, you know, I need to think about ways that, that I can exit this business so I can go enjoy uh, uh, life some more. Mm-hmm. So the triggers that we see causing folks to think about uh, exiting. So uh, w- what percentage of business owners actually can sell their business? Yeah, it's, these, the stats are amazing. As you know, 97% of all businesses in America are small businesses. Right. Half of those entrepreneurs want to exit in the next 10 years. So 50% want to exit. And only one in 100 successfully do so each year. And, and, and the problem is uh, that so many entrepreneurs are stuck in that vicious cycle of they're the technical expert at what they do, and you guys talk about this all the time, customers become dependent on them right. personally, mm-hmm. and the bond becomes deeper and deeper, and, and they, they have trouble extricating themselves. Mm-hmm. We talked about one of the, the secrets of, of kind of pulling yourself out is finding a scalable product that is teachable and repeatable. Um, number two is putting a, ca- a positive cash flow uh, model in place. Now, yeah, say you more know, about that one. Yeah, yeah, by all means. Essentially, a positive cash flow uh, a process means that you get paid first before you do the work. And so many of us, in particular in service businesses, are used to doing the work first and then sending the invoice. You think mm-hmm. about someone who comes and cleans your windows, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, they come and clean the windows, you come and inspect it, make sure they do a good job, and then they leave you a bill and you may pay it in 30 days. Well, that's a negative cash flow cycle. The, the more positive cash flow cycle would be to say to somebody, and one that would be a sellable business, look, you don't have to remember to call me once a month. Why don't we do a contract whereby I come at the beginning of every month, I clean your windows, and I'll just charge your credit card once a year, and we'll mm-hmm. do that at the beginning of each year, and you'll have an opt-out at any time to, mm-hmm. to not continue. Cash, positive cash flow uh, model. And that actually not only makes your business more sellable, it makes it more valuable in the eyes of a sell, in, in the eyes of a buyer, because a buyer values a company based on their return on equity. Right. And the less equity they need to put into a deal, the less cash they need to put into the operations of your business, mm-hmm. the easier it is to get a, a return on, on on their equity. And so, a, a business with a positive cash flow cycle. Um, is a lot better, easier to sell, and it usually drives a higher multiple for the owner uh, selling that business. So implement a positive cash flow cycle. Get paid first. And actually, aren't you finding that more and more service businesses are adopting this model? I know I was um, just a month ago at a chiropractor, and that's absolutely the model he operates his practice on, which was um, really amazing to me. I hadn't run into that before. But are you seeing more and more uh, companies beginning to adopt that model? We are, and it's a push-pull, by the way. Number one, business owners are having trouble getting the bank financing they typically relied on to Mm -hmm. finance their receivables. It's just not out there today. So by necessity, 
small business owners are saying, okay, mm-hmm. where else am I going to get the money to run my business? I need to go to my customers to finance my business. Mm-hmm. Number two, it's also a great acid test to test the relationship you have with your customers. Mm-hmm. If you ask them to pay in advance, you'll know pretty quickly whether you have a deep and loyal customer or if you've got work to do to, to bring them on side. So it can be a very quick way to assess how you're doing. Very good. All right. So we've, we've hit on the first two of the eight steps, right, for building a business that you can actually sell. So give us number three. Yeah. So Drucker talked about, you know, Peter Drucker, the management uh, you know, consultant who yeah. recently passed away, he talked about the idea that every business has two core functions, sales and marketing and product development. And the way you need to focus and grow a business is focus on those two things, sales and marketing and product innovation. If those two functions are in your hands as the owner, you can't sell your business because there's really nothing to sell. Mm-hmm. One of the functions you have to find and a way of, of getting into someone else's hands is sales and marketing. In particular, how do you get people uh, to come to your website, come to your company, come into your door and buy from you? And, and so the, the, the next step is really to hire a sales team. And again, for, for a lot of business owners, they're the number one rainmaker for their company. That's and right. so, this is so this is so counterintuitive. They, they say, you know, I'll, I'll worry about fixing all the other stuff. I'll, get the tech, you know, I'll, I'll hire someone to do technology. I'll hire someone to do operations. I'll hire someone to do all my finances. But boy, I'm a great salesperson. Well, that may be the case, but as long as you're the number one rainmaker for your company, it's not sellable. So as hard as it is to pry sales out of the hands of the owner, they need to find salespeople to replace them mm-hmm. in order to build a sellable company. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's, uh, it's often a tough battle to go kicking and screaming, but finding people to do the sales is important. And I found in my uh, business that, that salespeople come in two flavors. Um, they come in people who are good at selling services, and people who are good at selling products. And I had, I had two of these sales guys that, that, that worked for, for me when I was making this transition. I'll just use their first names. I had a guy named Don and a woman named Angie. And Don was from a, a big consulting firm. And he had all the right stuff on a resume, MBA, you know, all the right stuff. And he would go out and talk to customers. And he would come back and I'd say, oh, did, you know, did, did they buy our, our product? And he would say, you know what, they love the product, but they just want to change it in these six ways. <laughs> and I would say, but, but Dom, we're not customizing the product mm-hmm. for, for those customers. We, you know, we have one product, it's scalable, it's for people. Like, oh, no, but you know, they like the product, but they just want you to change it. Angie, on the other hand, was good at selling products. She knew how to reframe a product without changing its nature to make it relevant for those customers because she came from a background of selling products. She came from a background of selling mobile phones, cars, things mm-hmm. that are tangible. And so what I learned from that experience, of course, I hired a bunch of Angies and got rid of Don, but what I, learned <laughs> from the, what I learned from the experience was just how to evaluate a potential salesperson hire, and that is look for people who are good at selling products, not people who are good at selling services. Very good. Now, you go further, though, I know, noticed in the book, and you say you don't look for just one salesperson to replace you. That's why, you know, in step number four, you talk about hiring a sales team. Yeah. You know, um, a lot of people say, well, I'm, you know, I'm going to get my toe into the water of hiring a sales team. I, you know, I'm reluctant to give up sales, but at least I'll hire one salesperson. Mm-hmm. And so they hire the salesperson and give the entire territory to that salesperson. 
And that salesperson has the best job in the world. There's no accountability. Right. There's no way <laughs> for you to check up on how, you know, how much uh, cherry picking they're doing right. versus actually digging up new orders. That's and so right. what I always say is if you can hire one, you should hire two because two suddenly you have a team, suddenly you have competition, and each of them, if it's just two, they'll compete with themselves for the numbers, and it'll allow you to see just how much you know, business you were missing mm-hmm. when it was just one. So mm-hmm. hire two. And, you know, from uh, what I would add, too, from that, we hear this all the time from our clients, is that, you know, there's a certain belief that their sales process or their sales system is their salesperson. So the idea of having two people also gives you an opportunity to actually develop a process that will um, withstand the test of time and the test of various salespeople as they come and go throughout the life of the business as well. Karen, great point, because when an acquirer comes in to look at a business, and you say, oh, we've got a great salesperson. It's not all in my hands. This salesperson's fantastic. He puts up all the big numbers. Well, that acquirer is going to look and say, well, how have you got that employee locked in? And what's right. to stop them from competing with you? Exactly. So by having a sales team and, 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 pro- and a process behind it, suddenly you have a process, not just a, a guru salesperson. To, yeah, that, that goes along with the sale of the business. Absolutely. I That's loved right. number four. Number four, I thought was, I just had to laugh actually when I was reading this one because boy, this is what we do all the time. Number four says, stop accepting other projects. And boy, as business owners, we have a really tough time just staying focused with our core offerings, don't we? We sure do. And and this is one of the toughest parts of, of turning your business into one you can sell because, you know, especially in this economy, you think, wow, you know, I've got a, you know, bird in the hands worth two in the bush. I can actually go out and this customer's asking for my, you know, my product or service. And, and what I encourage you to do is say no. If it doesn't fall within the exact specifications of what you have set out to sell in the, in the product that is both repeatable, valuable, and uh, teachable. Mm-hmm. The reason you need to say no, by the way, is because it forces a customer to make a tough decision, and and it forces the conversation. If you say this is what we specialize in, but we're also willing to customize, it will 100% of the time take the custom solution because they want it just for them, right? That's right. So by saying we don't customize, it forces them to make a decision. And what I think you'll find by by being disciplined about it is the funny thing will happen. For every customer who says, no, I don't want to deal with your you know, prefab product, you'll find that there are at least two people who come to you inbound because they realize there's a specialist, and, and, and specialists are easy to refer. Mm. And so you'll find you get a lot more buzz and a lot more referability about your business if it's easy for people to say, oh, yeah, EMIT, they train entrepreneurs to, you know, to, to be – um, successful business owners got it. Whereas a general consultancy that has a lot of different offerings, it's just you know it's very hard to refer somebody who is a generalist. Specialists get referred. So, so you basically want to create that standard service offering, whatever it is, and stick with it. And tell your customers difficult conversations, but to tell your customers that that's what you specialize in, and mm-hmm. tell them what's in it for them. Um, that because you're going to do this over and over and over again, you're going to become the world's best at offering this product or service. Mm-hmm. And, and, that's, and that has meaning to them. As well. That's right. Okay, great. Now, the fifth step in um, building a business that you can actually sell 
is to uh, launch a long-term incentive plan for managers. I would, I would guess that this is one that is often overlooked, not even thought yeah. about probably. Yeah, Kim, you're absolutely right. Um, a lot of business owners, uh, first of all, when they start, they want someone to share in the experience with. They don't want to be all alone at the top without anyone to kind of bounce ideas off of. And so they often share equity with employees. Yeah. And, 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 and that's just, um, in my view, not the right thing to do. It, it, it's better to keep all the equity yourself. It's a lot easier to sell a business, a lot more tidy, a lot less dilution. And there are other ways to do it. And the best way to do it is to implement what I call a long-term incentive plan, which is simply tying a portion of the employee's bonus um, to a vesting period that falls after you sell your business. So, for example, if an employee makes a bonus of $5,000 in year one, you could take an amount equal to their bonus and say, I'm going to pay you in another $5,000 after three years, but you've got to stay with the company. And so that when you, when you shop your company to a third party to, to, to buy your business, they will see that you've got your employees locked in. Mm. The other reason this is so important is that in the, in the depths and in the heat of a negotiation with an acquirer, once you've gotten through the niceties and the pleasantries in the beginning, the actual acquirer is going to need to meet with your management team. They're going to need to physically get in front of the people, the next layer of managers underneath you. Mm-hmm. And so you're going to have to have something in the deal for that layer of management to encourage and incentivize them to both help you close the sale mm-hmm. of your business mm-hmm. and B, stay on after you leave. Mm-hmm. And so a long-term incentive plan is a lot cleaner than equity, uh, but it can serve the same purpose. Now, I would think, too, that, and so correct me if I'm wrong, but, uh, but off the top, I would think that this would also be a way to help you um, engage your managers in actually building the business so that you can, in fact, sell it. Because in this long-term um, incentive plan for them, they have a certain amount of job security beyond the sale, correct? That's right. That's correct. And, and you are tying the long-term incentive. It's not just a, a cash reward because you're a great right. person. It is tied uh, at a one-to-one level with their bonus. And so, obviously, you know, you know Employee Motivation 101, you want to you award a bonus for measurable targets met. Mm-hmm. And so as you sit down at the beginning of the year and you discuss the bonus structure for the employee, you say, this year, we're going to focus on this product, which is scalable, repeatable, and valuable to customers. And for every you know, one of these you sell, this is what's in it for you in, in your bonus. We're going to fo- focus on a cash flow positive model. And so you tie back your objectives to create, make your business sellable to your employee's uh, mm-hmm. bonus, and then you tie the employee's bonus back to the long-term incentive plan. Perfect. I just love that one. I really do think that um, it's one of the fear that many business owners have as they start thinking about building a business to sell. It, certainly, um, as we work with our clients, is, you know, well, how can I let anybody know that this is my game plan? They're just going to leave me. So this really takes care of a lot of those issues and, um, you know, does make your business sell- more sellable because the business, the buyer, has a certain level of security in the management team that they're taking on as well. So I love that one. I think that's huge. Now, number six, find a broker. Yeah. You know, your business is probably your number one asset. Most people, it's, it's more valuable than their, their home. 
And most people would not sell their home without using an agent. Some would, but most people continue to use an agent because an agent will market your business to a broader set of folks. They act as a foil for you in the negotiation process, and their job is to create competitive tension in the deal so that you've got more than one party bidding on your house, and in the case of a business, a business. Mm -hmm. And so, so I really encourage business owners to find a broker or a boutique M&A firm to represent them. It's too big an asset to do yourself. These are professionals and they get paid to, to, to create competitive tension for your deal. And so I encourage people to find one. If your business is quite small, um, sub one million in sales, you'll be best served by a business broker. And you can look at, uh, you, know, you can just simply Google business broker and you'll see the business brokers in your area. If your business is larger, um, you know, five or six or ten million dollars in sales, then you're going to be well served by a boutique mergers and acquisitions firm. And um, and again, uh, there are a lot of organizations. The AAMA is one of them that is a, a, a nationwide organization collective of boutique M&A uh, firm owners. So depending on the size of your business. Uh, it, you're, you'll get either a broker or an M&A boutique, but I'd really encourage you to find an intermediary to, cr- to create some competitive tension. Okay, so we're, we're talking about the eight steps. Finding a broker is step six. And then step seven, we're back to that management team, and that's the step in which you um, suggest that it's, it's now time to tell the management team, correct? Yeah. I mean, once you get a broker, uh, the process from there is they will create a teaser document, typically a one or two page document that describes the vital statistics of your business, sales, revenue, growth rate, and a little bit about what future you see for the business. It'll be disguised so that no one will know who you are in, in, in behind the, the teaser sheet. The broker then sends the teaser sheet out to their constituency, people they think might buy business or know someone who wants to buy a business. They'll drum up interest. And once they get interest from a buyer, they'll force that buyer to sign a non-disclosure agreement, which then gives them access to the book. And the book is a, a complete description of your business, including your name, but some very detailed information. But they've signed that non-disclosure agreement, so they're committed not to reveal who you are. Once they've done the NDA and once they've got the book, a subset of that group of b- potential buyers will ask for a management presentation. Mm-hmm. And that's where you and your managers, underscore the word managers, go in and present to the potential buyer your vision for the company. And it's at that point you've got to have your managers on side. Mm-hmm. And again, if you've done the work before, put the long-term incentive plan in place and some of the other things we've talked about, um, you'll find your managers much more receptive to participating in those meetings. Very good. Excellent. All right. And then finally, step number eight. Convert the offers into a binding deal. Yeah, so once you do the management presentations, um, hopefully uh, you'll get a couple offers. Mm -hmm. And they will come typically in the form of a non-binding letter of intent. And a non-binding letter of intent is simply that. It's It's an idea of what someone is willing to pay for your business after they go through a period of due diligence. Usually 60 days can be as much as 90 days. And it's the due diligence period that I've heard terrible analogy, but I'll say it anyways, 
some entrepreneurs describe as the business owner's equivalent to a proctology exam. <laughs> it's where the acquisitor and typically their MBA you know, disciples go off and try to get inside your business and try to understand all of the things you've said in the various stages of the process. They'll look at your sales structure, your employee files, and what they're looking for is dirt, what M&A people call hair, the, the problems with your business. Mm -hmm. And so don't be surprised if they find stuff. It's, it's typical that they do. No business is perfectly uh, clean of any uh, problems. Um, so don't lose your cool if they do find stuff. It is a 60-day process, and your goal is simply to survive due diligence. But one of the things that is common that I, you know, I encourage people to be aware of going into the process is that after the 60-day period, it's very likely that the acquirer will lower the offering price they stipulated in the letter of intent. Very common. Mm. And the reason they're willing to do that is you often have, most often, given them exclusivity to perform their due diligence. So all the competitive, uh, competitive tension is gone out of the deal and you're there intellectually committed to selling the business, emotionally committed to selling your business. And with you know, 72 hours left before closing, they throw out, oh, we need this concession or this new stipulation. We're going to lower our price by this much. And at that point, it's very difficult emotionally to walk away. Mm. So don't be surprised if that happens to you. I think what the letter of intent should be is, is a vague kind of notion about how they want to proceed, but don't take that to the bank because there's a lot of you know, baseball left to be played in those 60 days of diligence. Wow, John, you know, I, I have to tell you, and, I, and actually I, I shared this with you before um, we, we started our podcast here today, that I think that this book is just so long overdue. Again, because it is so accessible and easy to read, and yet so to the point, it, it, it's going to be a tremendous asset for any business owner of any size, I think, out there, even if uh, one has not considered yet the possibility of uh, selling or transferring the business at some point. Just really, really enjoyed it, and I can't recommend it highly enough. Um, but, but speaking of recommendations, I did notice on page, uh, I think it was 153, that you have a list of other books that you recommend to your readers, and one of them was The E-Myth Revisited. But you didn't just stop there. You also strongly recommended that uh, readers engage with an E-Myth coach and enroll in the Mastery Impact Program. So tell me, tell me about that. What, why do you feel so strongly about it that you actually made that recommendation in your book? Yeah, you know, I'm glad you brought it up. I, I, um, if you get a sense from the, from the interview the last few minutes that, that a lot of what building a, a sellable business is about um, is about discipline. A lot of people know this stuff, right? A lot of people know some of the information we talked about today, but do they have the discipline and follow-through to execute? Mm. And that's where I think a coach is so fundamental. I mean, uh, you know, the, the greatest sports athletes in the world have coaches, yet, um, yet it, it just helps them stay focused and disciplined on what they're trying to do. So mm. that's why I think having a coach is just so important um, to help you kind of make this shift. Remember, you know, a lot of this is done before you tell your employees. And as a result, you need someone externally uh, to be a coach, to be a cheerleader, to hold you accountable. And that's why I think having a coach is such a, you know, such a critical piece to making this change. 
Perfect. Thank you so much for sharing that because I think you're you're absolutely right. I think that um, so many business owners, you know, they collect the information intellectually, they get it, but it's a very different thing when you need to actually implement these strategies. And having a coach help you do help you to do that makes all the difference. So, John, thank you so much for for being with us today. Um, Before we close up, I I wanted to share with everybody some of the um, wonderful offers that you have actually extended to the eMyth community. Um, One is an ebook that can be downloaded when you receive the link uh, or you get to the link uh, on this podcast uh, post in the blog. There will be um, a link for your your ebook called The Model for Selling Your Business. And it, it just introduces... Uh, people to some of the ideas from the book Built to Sell. But also, John has made available uh, a $5 discount on the purchase of the book Built to Sell. That link will also be in the podcast post in the blog uh, for all of you to access. But there is a third thing that John has on his website that I'd love you to tell everybody about. It's the um, Sellability Index Quiz. What's that all about? Yeah, the, the best way to think about the sellability index quiz, it's a little bit like a pregnancy test. Uh, women have pregnancy tests to know if they're pregnant, and business owners have the sellability index quiz to know if they have a company they could sell. It takes four minutes to complete, and by the end, you'll know not only if you have a sellable business, what you might get for it in the marketplace today. So you can take the sellability index quiz at builttosell.com. It's the first thing you'll see, and I encourage people to do it. It takes four minutes, and you'll know if you're pregnant or not. <laughs> Perfect. We all need to know that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> all right. Well, to close up today, um, we all know that savvy business owners r- really know and recognize that the biggest payout is not going to come from the salary or the dividends that the business brings in now. The biggest payout will come the day that you actually sell the business. So in addition to all the other you know, business development um, benefits of the EMIT coaching programs that uh, John alluded to a little bit earlier, we actually can help you create the business system that's going to provide you with that high equity return that you're looking for. So that brings us to the end of another EMIT Your Business podcast. Thanks to John Warlow so much for joining our discussion today. And you can find John online at builttosell.com. And as always, please visit us again online at e-myth.com. With that, John, thank you so very much. Really enjoyed it. And I can't recommend this book highly enough. It's absolutely outstanding. You're very kind. It's a pleasure to be with you. All righty. Thanks so much.